Today's guest is Sean Longdo, CEO of Outforce.ai. This is one of those conversations that a lot of people in startups who are constantly behind schedule, constantly over budget, in particular with the development of a software product, really are going to want to listen to. Especially because when building a business like that, inflection points are going to be inevitable. And what do you do when you need to scale up? And how do you best optimize to take most advantage of the new talent that you bring in to try to meet that demand? Or as Sean calls it, elastic demand. While we cover and answer those questions in this conversation, this conversation also gets to borrow from a five-time founder, entrepreneur, and one who regularly mentors other founders now. And really has a keen eye for go-to-market strategy. Fundamentally, if you're an entrepreneur in general, you're going to really benefit from listening to this conversation because of the nature of Sean as an entrepreneur and how it is he is efficient with his questions when looking to solve problems. So if this is piques your interest, which I hope it has, if you're an entrepreneur, you're always looking to learn from other entrepreneurs. Without further ado, here's Sean. Sean, my man, it is good to have you here. Uh, we've had Thank some you, Bill. time. It's great to be here. Yeah, yeah. No, look, we've had some time to get acquainted, and uh, we narrowed it down. We do believe there is an important discussion to be had here. And I was mulling over when I was looking over my notes, like, where do I start? Where do I get this conversation going? Now, you're a serial entrepreneur, and... While many try to take the title, not many live to say it later when you're mentoring <laughs> other entrepreneurs day to day, right? You're highly involved, constantly working. And so for me, I think what, what is always fascinating is what do you do when you're not explicitly working? Like, how do you spend, I think this is important. Like if we started to, if I had to put it in a question, like over 25 years of being in tech, like what's a non-tech hobby? that has actually informed mm -hmm. your tech work? I would say the hardest thing that I work on is communication skills, interpersonal communication skills, connection. Um, you know, people, uh, you can really tell the greenhorns when they come out and they blab about product. Nobody wants to know about product. Product's a commodity. It's, you know, it, obviously it's what are you gonna do for me is always helpful. But really making interpersonal connections, especially in an area of technology where those connections are lost through media. And uh, so it's, I'd say that's what I work on the most. Um, you know, I work with coaches and I work with uh, other podcasters who are really good at uh, establishing connection. Yeah. That's yeah. What I, do. I, I think it's awesome to hear someone in a position of leadership actually emphasizing how important communication is, especially when doing the kind of work you do which involves like bringing talent, not only internally, but like externally to other companies as uh, as sort of the the byproduct of how it is you're in business right now. You've yeah. been in multiple, uh, multiple different companies, but in particular, I, what I find fascinating and what's timely for now is that outsource, uh, outsourcing your talent isn't something that everyone has a lot of confidence in. They think everything has to be internal. Right. And especially in tech, this is something that's written all over your website, right? With what you're doing with Outforce.ai. But especially in tech, 
it can get expensive super, super fast. Oh, yeah. And I think if I read the notes right, no one knows this more than you. And it's the whole reason you even started your company was, I, I imagine you spent a lot of money on the wrong people getting nowhere fast. Can you sort of tell me probably the most relevant point in your business entrepreneurial career where you just took a look at the talent that was around you, the people you invested in, and, you know, many people will try to blame the talent per se, but at the end of the day, you know, you as a leader hired the people, brought the people in. So can you sort of take us to that moment? I know there's not ever <laughs> one pivotal moment. One moment, you, many? But, How about that? <laughs> but can you take us to a time where it really became clear to you and enough was enough? Well, that happens a lot in companies as they go through transitions as well, right? It's not like it's just, um, you know, when you're hired, when you're starting a company, you look for, I'm, I'm a sales founder, you know, I, I, I'm founder-led sales all the way through to building the team and then getting the product market fit, and then we get into scale. And when you transition to scale, sometimes you need a different engineering resource to lead that than the one who bootstrapped your company together. And I see that a lot in our clients where you have a technical reboot because, you know, you're just, you're scrapping together a few bucks. You, you build a product, you throw it out there. Client says, yes, if it has that, you build that. Next client says, yes, if it has that, you copy and build to the next one. And, and the next thing you know, you got a bunch of code that's just, you end, you end up with what's called technical debt that is actually so big that you can't add anything else. You're spending more time fixing than you are building. And at that point, you have to transition out. And usually, you know, it's quick load up uh, software like a Ruby on Rails kind of thing that gets you into the trouble. And you need to move to more scalable technology. So it's, and sometimes the people that got you to that product market fit aren't the people who are going to lead a larger engineering team. So that, those are kinds of transitions companies go through. Um, and sometimes they are, but it, you know, it, sometimes it's a firefighter is not going to build a massive office building kind of thing, right? That's, that's where you got to look at and see whether those are the right people. And, and then in my case, you know, I was lucky. I, I've had really great engineering leads in each of my companies, but the problem was scalability in a quick manner. So mm -hmm. you need to, let's, we had to do a show. We had to get the product ready for the show, the trade show. Boom, you need engineering capacity for a short term. Or you get a new client who, who loves the product, but yeah, we needed to have this, this, and the other thing. And that's going to be bespoke to that client, or it's a front end or an API specific to a client's uh, needs. You don't need those engineers for a long time, but you need them to understand your business. You need them to understand uh, your tech stack, obviously. Um, so that they are quick to build. And that's where the challenge lies, is finding that right-fitting outsourced organization that has built what you're building or something similar to it, that they can hit the ground running. And if you, and it's the opposite problem of hiring an engineer. Hiring an engineer is hard, takes time. And there's an onboarding process and you've got a 50, still a 50% chance of success or failure in that. Outsourcing, it's like taking your kid to the daycare for the first time, right? Like you, you don't want to give that to just anybody. So you go to, hey, Phil, do you own anybody? And you have, have you had a good experience? Well, you're in media tech and I'm in health tech. So your people wouldn't necessarily be knowing about my business. 
but they'd be good. And if they're good, even if they knew health tech and they're good, probably their best engineers are already booked out to other clients. So what am I doing? Just kicking the can down the road. So then the next thing you do is you go online and you look at, you know, hey, I hear Ukraine's really good or I hear wherever is is great. And now, you know, there's, well, guess what? There's 1,600 companies in Ukraine alone. Where do you start, right? It's like saying, I, got a, I want to build a hockey team. Well, I'm a Canadian, but I, <laughs> I don't play hockey. <laughs> so so it's, it's water, water everywhere, but not a drop to drink. And unfortunately, water is being spouted into your inbox every day with you know, unsolicited offers. And so you talk to the head of the, one of those companies and you, get, you hear everything you want to hear because that's what they're good at selling. But then when it's delivery... They don't know your business. They bring in junior engineers who don't know what they're doing. Um, and you go through the same thing every entrepreneur goes through, the trough of despair. You heard the pitch. You're excited about when these people start. And then two sprints in and you're going, oh, my gosh, what have I just done? And then you either rip the cord and start over again, which means you've wasted months because it took you months to find the right one. Or you, uh, or you keep pushing through and just suffer it. And that's, oh. that is what I've experienced personally. And I didn't want that to happen to anyone else. So I built the company to fix, solve that problem. Now, did you tell anybody about when you were building this in, in, your, uh, in your network of people who used to maybe refer people to you, that you were in health tech, media tech? Hey, you know what? I'm thinking of actually doing this. And what was their feedback? Because often, you know, d- depending on who the entrepreneur is, they'll talk about what they're about to build because they see it's a real problem. Right. And right. this and, and you start getting in this traction. And then there are people who you really trust and believe in. And as a mentor, I feel like you probably hear this all the time, but there's people who trust and who you trust and believe in. And the first thing you do is go, I don't know, man. That's not. Did you get any kind of resistance from the from the most trusted people in your circle? And how did you navigate that? Yeah, that's a really good question. So this company is two pivots, is it in its third pivot, just wow. so you know. Yeah, it started off as a side of the desk. I was building another company in the city of Calgary, and uh, I was trying to help the community import uh, companies and talent. And Trump had come in, and the H one, and he was going after immigration. Right, it's first the Syrian and uh, sorry, the uh, um, Muslim countries, and guess what? Some of the greatest mathematicians and algorithm writers in the world come from Syria and Iran. And um, and so those people weren't feeling too comfortable in the United States. So I went down and pulled those people into Canada. Canada's a really uh, fast immigration program for high-tech workers. So got those up and then built teams around them uh, for companies like Facebook and Apple. And, and it was just side of the desk stuff. And then he went after H-1Bs, which is basically mostly tech workers largely from India and there's thousands of them who have been there for 20 years and just renewing H1Bs because there's a limit on how many people from India can get a green card so that so 80% of your immigration in the United States is in in H1B is Indian tech worker and then that person gets renewed and if that person becomes critical to the operations of a company they don't want to lose them Suddenly, they were not renewing H-1Bs. So I started a company called Code in Canada. 
And I was basically offering to hire those H-1Bs, sponsor their visa in Canada, and contract them back to the U.S. So it's just like they moved from, you know, the South Bay to uh, Minnesota. Like, no sweat. And then... And then I started a recruiting company out of that. And then I was bringing in people from all over the world, from South Africa, from Ukraine, from everywhere, and uh, feeding the Canadian ecosystem with engineers. And then COVID happened. Wiped out. Yeah. yeah. So nobody was coming to Canada. And I went, well, I got to figure something out. And guess what? Remote became okay, thanks to COVID. So I didn't need to bring anybody into the country. And um, the problem that I'd had every time I built a company, I'd hit an inflection point where I needed to outsource and I had this problem. I didn't know where to start and where it ends. I mean, nobody has a process. People have great hiring processes. Outsourcing, yeah. You do it once or twice, so you don't really have a good process. You don't have good data because you don't have any time. So you're dealing with a very small set. Your chances of failure are statistically about 39%. And another 20%, are not failures, but they just push through like I described before. So I decided to build a database of who's good at what. And uh, using the, you know, starting off with the network that I had around the world for, who were sourcers for our, you know, our recruiting business, I said, who's, what's a really good dev shop there? And tell me more about it. And then, and first people, first mistake people make when they actually do talk to a dev shop, they say, hey, this is my problem. Can you fix it? Every one of them would say yes, no matter what. <laughs> Some of them can, but you don't know who. And, uh, and so uh, what I decided to ask was a really simple question that would sort of filter out what they were really good at from, an from more of an integrity point of view. And it's basically, look, I represent North American companies who are looking for outsourcing. If I brought you the perfect customer, what business would it be in? Oh, we do marketplaces. Oh, we do media tech. Oh, we do health tech. You know, and then what aspect of that do you do? Right? Is it marketplaces in, you know, B two C or B two B? Is it B two B in logistics? What you know, these kinds of things. So we drill down, and now I know that they've got the project experience in that domain. That if I bring a client to them, they probably know the business better than my client, who might be a first time entrepreneur in that business domain. Right. So they're contributing to what they should and should not build. And then, of course, there's the data there, you know, how big is their bench strength in the tech stack? So that if, if we bring them five engineers from that company, one of them might not work out, might have slipped through the interview process, not saying a lot, and ends up being very sensitive to criticism or anything out of personal or definitely not a technical basis because we vet based on the CVs. but um, from a personality and communication style, these are the things we try and flush out. That's probably the biggest reason things fail is communication styles, understanding each other and how you talk and with the nuance of what you say. You know, what does complete mean to someone might mean something completely different to someone else? No pun intended. So, <laughs> uh, so yeah, so that's, uh, that's kind of what we did. And we figured out who's good at what and what tech stack. And then that's just a uh, first level due diligence. And then when, if they get shortlisted, we go through who they've got at the time. And then we shortlist down to that, to uh, who's got the best cultural fit to my client. You know, their work style, their communication style and all that stuff. You know, it's really and, cool. 
Oh, sorry. I, I was yeah. I was so a ninety-eight percent success rate versus like a thirty-nine percent uh, is pretty good. That yeah. happens fast. This is exactly coming back to even how we started this conversation about your interest in communication and mm. how important that was to you, to how you see it such a pivotal piece of what Outforce is doing as a as a as a mission. Oh, yeah. Right? Is look, you can find technically competent people everywhere. You know, yes. And, you know, no amount of scrum or product owner uh, uh, trying to tap into things and, and sort of wrangle people together is going to solve a fundamental issue, which is a communication issue. Right. right. Uh, exactly. Especially when there's technical debt involved and people have to try to figure out how to solve all that while still moving forward because mm -hmm. money is being spent every day. Right. <laughs> so right. I, I think it's really awesome that part of the the cornerstone of what Alforce is doing is ensuring that there is that fit uh, of what does it mean when someone says, you know, uh, I want this done? Have they taken into account, is this person a perfectionist? You know, how does that look in the real world playing out? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Someone, I want this Over done. Overbuilding, scope yeah. creep, and all <laughs> those things can go on. Yeah, but I thought you wanted this too. No, actually, I just needed this for this deadline. Thanks very much. Yeah. <laughs> It's like we're done. literally oh. just doing this sprints, right? So you want this whole thing complete? No, no. So yeah. a lot of that, I think, is so important because most people aren't really good at delegating in general, right? Just by mm. default, especially entrepreneurs who, I mean, let's face it, you know, go-getters, often the first ones to be like, I'll do it myself, right? So there's already that bottleneck in most businesses anyways with most founders. I imagine you run into this a lot. Um, just working and mentally. Oh, yeah. I, I'm not going to waste time on these guys. I'm going to go do it myself. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. So then, so then you compound that, that problem with uh, outsourcing and bringing in people who aren't originally part of your company or what have you. Um, mm -hmm. And even internally, that's a problem. So it, you it can might just be a second see, language. Yeah. Right? You yeah. know, so I, I just want to really highlight how important it is that what you've decided to include as part of your solution to a problem is the communication styles. That oh, in yeah. itself is a huge value prop. And I, I just, I'm so curious about how you thought to ask that versus what most people ask, which you're right. No one's going to turn away business. Can you solve this? Yes. Yes. Yeah. And, 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 what, and when do you need it by, right? But right. the fact that you turn the question on its head, I, I want to get to the DNA of that because I feel like <laughs> that in itself, and you know, this may be an impossible task just because it's who you are, right? And maybe we can just learn about what makes you the kind of person that can ask that question. Right. Is there, mm. if you were to contemplate on it, because I think this is where the real juice is going to be. We already know Outforce is awesome, by the way, just by listening to what you said. Okay. So yeah. the, the, the question is, you know, if you had to think about it for a second, is it because of your investment in communication that you also work hard to know exactly what you're asking people? Um, I, it's a really good question. I'm not sure where it comes from, but I look for efficiency. Right. I mean, we try and get all that done in a, in a couple, three weeks, right? And so you don't have a lot of time to ask a lot of questions. So you need to ask the questions that are going to get you the best answer. Get, you know, I, I met the founder of, a, of a Plenty of Fish, which was soltomatch.com. Yeah. And I had, the, I had the luxury of asking him, you know, hey, I said, we're kind of in the dating business too, right? Like we're finding companies that are matching for our client. And, he, and I, said, I said, what are the top three things you learned from from running this business. And he, he sold it for like 900 million and he didn't 
get funding or anything. He, he sold it for 900 million in his pocket. So it was amazing. He said, uh, number one is it doesn't, it's not matching. It's not not matching that makes the difference, right? So if you get to 90% uh, fit, that's good enough. People will come back for more, right? So in our case, that kind of a question gets us to about uh, 65, 70%. And then the other 30 is who they've got in their in their fit, in their team that's available that week. Because like I said, good companies are booked out. So you need to know that they've got a good team. And we usually get by the end of the day, we start with a massive database. So um, we usually get by the time we're down to the last five, two or three companies where the whole team is just coming off a project where they built something very similar. So you got one plus one equals two with that equals five with engineering, right? If you got two people who work together, their productivity are, are a lot greater than just one-on-one. So you get this magic of that team that just came off. They know exactly what you're building They're and they're in the tech stack and they work together and they finish each other's senses. Boom. You've got a rocket. That's phenomenal, but it's how they communicate with each other and with you. Right? So what I tend to ask, and I've, oh, by the way, I have all of these secrets in a book that somebody told me we should sell, but I, I give it away at our website because I don't want anyone to waste any time. And I'm happy to give all the ways we, we do these questions. But as an example, in a, in a, in a coding uh, experiment, one of the questions we ask is, so what did you learn in the last six months that changed the way you write software? And I look for the answer, right? Well, if there's no answer, then okay, you're not you're not a continuous learner. We want continuous learners. If they answer, they can articulate, and they can articulate it well. I know they're a good communicator, right? So that's just one question that gets you two answers. Another one is to the company itself. So we all know you've done great work, and you'll send us a portfolio of all the great work you've done. Tell me what happened when shit hit the fan, because it always hits the fan. There's always going to be some glitch. And I look for their body language and their and the way they answer. And if they answer, if they do give the right answer, which is generally about, you know, we we discuss things before they come up, their sprints, blah, 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 blah. Um, then I say, well, you know, I'm going to talk to that client. So are they going to say exactly <laughs> the same thing that you just said? And then I look for either the shit I didn't slide my, through my teeth or the, yeah, yeah, go ahead. No problem. Then I know I'm dealing with honest people as well. So that's those are kind of the three areas that I probe to figure out what kind of a company they really are. No, I'm, I'm big on and this. Person they really are. I'm big on this, man. And do you find that this is something that really started to take shape even in your own approach as an entrepreneur once you founded and launched Outforce? Or was this something that started to build and, and really become a part of who you were as an entrepreneur earlier on, maybe after your first or second company? There's no way it was the first company, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, no, when we were doing international, the efficiency of questioning and, and filtering is paramount. I mean, like I said, we have 89, we have 79,000 companies in our database. Oh, we wow. can't spend a lot of time on that first level due diligence. So finding the most efficient ways to get there, that was definitely an outcome of, of doing this business. And the prior to that, doing international recruiting, you know, you drop a, you drop a, a job opportunity into uh, a hot spot like um, like Istanbul, right? Like in Turkey, you have a lot of people exiting from hot, you know, countries like Syria and Iran as examples, and so you have a lot of engineering capacity in that in, that is mobile in that country. 
which is a great place to recruit from as a result. Um, but you have a lot of people that don't understand what engineering is. So you, you, talk, you describe the software, the JD's all there, and then you get you know a mechanical engineer or an electrical engineer applying for the same job. So you have to have very efficient ways of filtering all that noise out. And the same thing now at scale with large companies you know, that all say they can do everything. You have to really quickly get to where, what is essential for your client. And I would say tech stack and business domain are table stakes. The real secret sauce is in the interview process and finding out what their culture is like. And that's that's a whole discussion in, in and of itself is, you know, the, there's this idea that we're expounding on about uh, outsourcing and, and, and recruiting and bringing people in in that capacity, right? And working with a company like Alforce mm-hmm. that's doing the work that's necessary. And then there are people who are just contemplating bringing in someone full time while they're trying to scale. And that in and of itself is a Herculean task. Do you have any stances or opinions on hiring versus outsourcing and what you should be doing when? How does that work based on your experience? Yeah. Yeah. No, uh, I think you, you do. You, the best solution is to hire your own team, except for those p- times where you have elastic demand. And you just don't, you know, it's going to be a six month or a 12 month uh, effort and you know that you're going to let them go. Um, so it's funny because our sweet spot are companies that are more in the series A, series B category where they're really scaling up, but the occasionally we'll work with an entrepreneur who's just starting and we will do that because you do not like if you've, you know, you've read um, Colin's book on the people on the bus and, you know, uh, and how to make sure that they're very flexible. The people, like I said at the beginning, the people who you work with at the beginning might not be the people you want as you scale. And it's certainly before you go and, you know, give 30% of the company to your engineering partner, because that's the guy from computer science class who you really liked and thought you would get along <laughs> with and start this great company. Um, you might want to rethink that and think, with AI and Copilot and all these other tools you can use to quickly build anything, speed is the most important thing. And your go-to-market strategy is probably as important, if not more important, than your technology strategy. And in fact, the product, as I said before, products are pretty, you know, it's very hard for people to distinguish the incremental benefit of one product against another. Marketing helps that, go-to-market helps that. So what you really want to make sure is whatever your idea is, which you think is unique, you need to make sure it has product market fit. And inevitably, when you, like we did, when we launched a product, and I've done this many times, oh, no, it's over here, not, uh, not exactly where I thought it was. And so you need to totally rebuild to what the market wants. If you do want to hire all that engineering expertise to go into one direction and find out you got to pivot to the next. No, you should get your product market fit then you've actually got a better story to tell to hire the engineers that you want on full-time basis. And then, but even that, you get product market fit, you get um, with a, you know, a quick, a quick build and company. And again, a company that knows the space, the domain really well is going to build you something that makes a lot of sense for what you're trying to do. Right. You may have ideas, but they will know nuances. And then you get product market fit, you start clamping in, you start replacing that sort of early team of contractors with your own team as your core engineering team. But then anything that's sort of extraneous to that, 
you let contractors do that because that's a waste of your time to spend all the time hiring somebody and then kick him out. And if you need to scale, you know, you want to build us just in terms of scaling and time to hire a good pod of engineers that are cross-functional, let's say it's seven, five or seven people. You know, you hire your senior person, that's three months, two months to onboard them. And then that person's increment is going to be hiring their engineers, junior, front end, you know, senior, whatever it is. That's probably another couple of months. You could be into nine to 12 months before you get a cross-functional engineering team. You think about that, right? And if speed is critical, you we could get a company, the same engineering team that actually has built many of what they're building and has all the expertise in three weeks. And they hit the ground running. Think of all the product you can build. You're still going to hire those teams. And as I said, they peel them back as you build. And 90% of the time, they go in a parallel path. They got, this is my engineering team for all this other stuff. And this is the engineering team I hire for my core. But I can build product way faster, get it to market, figure out what works. You know, speed is, I would say, the magnet that not only brings you first customers, it brings you first money, it brings you first mover advantage. And all those things bring you great talent. Yeah. So that's what outsourcing offers is speed and expertise. And that's when you should use it. But, um, you know, um, some people just want to build their team. And, and I understand why. And I did the same thing myself. So there's advantages and disadvantages to both. Right. And, and, and even then, you ultimately say the goal is to have your own, your own team internally. But it's like you said, or, where, the, yeah. where the elastic demand starts to take shape, it's where to take things into consideration like outsourcing. And, right. and, I, and I love that you're talking about this because you look at the current landscape of things and you see all these major companies, you know, while it's not specifically engineering, but you see so many massive layoffs because people were focused on shareholder this or that. When honestly, if that is the case, how does a a, um, a sort of elastic demand like that? Like, you know, we need to get the shareholders involved because while you work mostly with, you know, Series A and Series B, there are some major companies out there that seem to make moves just a little differently. And then they get all this backlash on social media because they're laying off 40% of their workforce and they can probably afford to do that. But the burn rate between... Uh, three weeks and nine months is massive in terms of yeah. how you can iterate, get to where you want to go, not bleeding cash, especially when you're Series A and Series B, right? This is is exactly what you're alluding to. Am I understanding this correctly? Well, I so good engineers anywhere around the world are not, like the perception is, oh, outsourcing, that's India. And that's 10 cents on the dollar. Well, there is educational programs in India where, Facebook, Google, and everybody are lined up at the door for the graduates and they're signing in $250,000 checks just to finger paint in the office so they can get <laughs> I mean, so the perception that you can get cheap engineering geographically diverse is relatively true because there are lower costs of living in certain markets, but a really top engineer anywhere in the world is in demand anywhere in the world. Um, so burn is not the issue. What And, and you ask any senior engineer worth their salt it's not cost if you can get an engineer that is twice as productive for for then instead of getting five engineers that are not productive poof, take the one right and that's and and that's kind of where people are more 
they're happier to work with someone that is a mirror of themselves. And therefore that is generally geographically proximate to them, right? A Canadian or an American want to hire a Canadian or American. But once you start seeing what other people can do in other markets, and then they bring that other perspective. I mean, if you want to build a global company, you've got to have engineers around the world anyway. Uh, there's none of those, none of the big companies have never outsourced. They've all outsourced something. So it's not like it's uh, it's not in the program. Um, but uh, yeah, like you can get a better rate in Argentina than you can in, um, you know, in, in, in the Bay, obviously. But you really, what we really solve for is speed and quality. It, I call it the, uh, what did I call it? The trilemma. Yeah. So it's a trilemma of you can pick two. You've got price, quality, or speed. And we solve for quality and speed. If you want, price comes based on the luck of the geography of that team that's available that is perfect for you. Um, and Or that company that's perfect for you that will work with you. Uh, and so, yeah, so that's what we solve for. Yeah. And, you know, anyone who succeeds in business knows that anytime you're focused on costs, it's a race to the bottom eventually, no matter what you're trying to do. If you're trying to do anything worth uh, anything of merit. I mean, I think the only place that really comes into 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 factoring is when you're doing manufacturing, because you have the goal has to be eventually to lower costs as much as possible as production scales. Yeah. Uh, but, but otherwise, <laughs> yeah, and there, you know, there are ways to, you know, like you can hire junior engineers if you've got the patience and the people to mentor them and bring them right. into being great engineers. So if we call that farming and that's a great way to go as well. Uh, and, and better than going and finding a junior engineer from a country where they hardly speak English and you're in a time zone difference. That's a disaster because yeah. you'll end up rebuilding everything, everything they built. So yeah, yeah we go for quality and speed, and, uh, speed. And, speed and, and then you know effective prices based on everyone you know everyone's bidding against each other so you go for whatever you like well look sean uh, first of all you dropped a lot of bombs on us here uh that that really i think for anyone who was sleeping uh they need to, <laughs> they need to understand you know this is a wake-up call to really understand how fast are you trying to go and how great are you trying to be by the time you get there you know what i mean mm. and mm -hmm. that's really the fundamental excuse me <clears throat> That's really where this conversation is going. And you're even offering, you say you have a book that you give away, I think for free, you said on your website. Yeah, it's called, yeah The Definitive Guide to Outsourcing. It gives you all the, all the tips to do it on your own, which you're welcome to do. We also have a, a free tool on our website, which is um, basically the redacted database. So you can filter, you can just see what what kind of outcomes you can get just by picking domain, time zone, all that stuff. Um, and uh, and then if you want the full full nine yards, we, uh, we're at your service if you want to do it. Right. And they just have to go to outforce.ai and there's a sign-up sheet and all that for that? Yep, exactly. Yep. Right on. Well, outside of that, is there anything else while you have the people's attention, Sean? <laughs> yeah. Is there anything well, else? I go for it. <laughs> 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 nothing gets made without risk um yeah i'd say the only thing we talked a lot of, a lot about culture i think one of the things that is interesting is to be is if you are going to work in another country with a company with a team from another country it's worthwhile investigating what are the social norms of those countries so that you under and we call that outcome expectation so you know just an example if you take if you, well, this happened for us a lot when we brought people in from other parts of the world, 
um, you know, you bring somebody in from a country that is everything's negotiable. And then suddenly they're at Walmart and nothing's <laughs> negotiable, right? That just creates, there's a neuro, there's a neuropathy of that. So the, the neurons are expecting that you can go to the counter and negotiate the price for that t-shirt. And suddenly, boom, it hits the wall. So it creates white noise in the head, which reduces productivity in other areas. Just sitting down on a subway seat versus staying standing up. What is the social norm? Having a coffee, what do you talk about on a coffee with someone from India or from Southeast Asia before you talk about business? In, in North America, we have five minutes of, hey, hey with the, and then boom, straight into business and then the follow-up email and away you go. No, you have to get through three conversations and maybe even get invited to dinner with grandma before you can start talking business in some parts of the world. Hierarchical societies versus non-hierarchical societies and their deference to decision making, right? Like you would run a sprint and you got a bunch of people from Southeast Asia, which is hierarchical, and they're not going to question the boss. You have to know that and get them to speak up and make them feel safe about making mistakes, which is not acceptable in some countries. All these things are nuances that we look at when we look at cultural differences and whether the company's ready for something like that or not. And we direct them to companies that are more suitable. I have a literal direct experience of what you're talking about. I, oh, yeah? I had been contracted to do fractional marketing for a company based out of Singapore that raised, uh, I think, Series C at that point um, okay. with a venture capital firm. And I'm sitting in the meeting and they're asking, like, does anyone have any questions? You know, and I seem to be the only person that consistently had questions. Most yeah. of the team was based in Singapore, you know, and they're all yeah. very smart, very capable people, often agreed with me when I would bring things up before getting to the meeting. And yet yeah. no one ever asked any questions. I started to feel like I was sticking out and I was ruffling feathers. And, you know, while that was a short contract, uh, mostly just because that's all they really needed, when I reflect on it, it never left me that I really was the only one asking questions, which was really unusual because, as you know, That's America, right. everyone has the audacity. That guy doesn't know what he's talking about. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So I love that you bring that up because, wow, that's got to be the next book that's downloadable. Sometimes, that's right. You know what I mean? It's just, it's such yeah. a valid thing to bring up. Listen, man, I had a really great time talking to you and uh, I can really feel the experience come through when I hear you speak. Uh, I'm very you, grateful. I want to reiterate for those who are listening, outforce.ai is really mm -hmm. where you want to go. Get all the good stuff. Uh, you know, you can you can find Sean online. Are you open to people reaching out or connecting with you? On oh yeah, definitely on LinkedIn. Okay, yeah. and, 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 and uh, it's, uh, Sean yeah. Longdo. You it's pronounced well. It's L A N G U E D O C, which is a handful of, of a French word. Uh, it's a province in southern France, um, and Sean is Irish, so it's S E A N. Uh, bad combo, eh? Wine and beer. <laughs> <laughs> That's how you get the party started, Sean. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, look at outforce.ai. You'll see me on the on the abouts page. And if you can hook up with me on LinkedIn, that's that's great too. Right on, man. Thank you for stopping by. Okay. Thank you, Philip. Been great.